If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Acts chapter 20. Feel free to use table of contents if you need to. It's in the New Testament, the latter part of the Bible, right after the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Acts chapter 20. As you're turning, I want to welcome those of you in Arlington and Loudoun and PW, MoCo, as well as others online who are not able to be with us in person today. It's good to be together around God's Word. I, I do want to mention from the start that this Sunday and next Sunday are going to be somewhat unique during our time in the Word. And then the plan is two Sundays from now, Lord willing, we're going to start diving together into the book of James, and we're going to walk through it week by week, which I can't wait for us to do. It is such a practical, loving some James, love that, uh, practical, helpful, encouraging, convicting book of the Bible. But today, I want to share an exciting update in our church family, and then an exciting update from my personal family that will lead us into the Word, and I hope serve you well with it. And especially if you're visiting with us, or maybe even exploring Christianity, one, we are so glad you're here. And I hope that even this first part will make you, or help you understand a little bit about what the church is and how the church works, and then that second part. I hope that you will see a picture today of the love of God for you in a way that changes your life forever. So let's start with the exciting update for our church family. If you are a member of NBC, you should have received an email from me a little over a week ago now about how we're going to have our next church family meeting on Sunday night, September 24th. And at that church family meeting, in addition to affirming new members in our church, we're going to have an opportunity to affirm Mike Kelsey as a lead pastor in our church. And I want to give you... I hope you're hearing that in MoCo there, Mike. Uh, I want to give all of us some biblical and personal background behind this. So biblically, and this is why we're starting in Acts 20, look at verse 17. It'll be on the screen if you don't have it. But Paul is traveling through a place called Miletus, and the Bible says, now for Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. And then he goes on. There's a ton we could talk about in this passage. What I want you to see today is that Paul did not call the pastor of the church at Ephesus to meet up with him. Instead, Paul called the elders of the church at Ephesus to meet up with him. Note the elders, plural. And this is just one example in the New Testament. You could turn back a couple of pages in your Bible to Acts 14, 23, where elders, plural, are appointed in every church to lead and serve and shepherd every church. So the Bible never gives us a picture of a church that revolves around one pastor, or one personality. Instead, the biblical picture we have is Jesus alone as the Lord, the chief shepherd of his church, and multiple elders or pastors or overseers, those terms are interchangeable in the Bible, in the church who share the responsibility of shepherding the church under the authority of Jesus to become more like Jesus. Now, the way this plays out may vary in the structure of any church that's trying to be faithful to the Bible. And I mention this because NBC has had different structures over the last 60 years. 
And other churches who have the same conviction about a plurality of pastors, they sometimes have different structures. So I don't want anything I'm about to say to come across as saying that any other church leadership structure, including ones we've had at NBC in the past, are necessarily bad or unhealthy. But ever since I came here, almost six years ago now, I have wanted to explore every way we can possibly cultivate a healthy plurality of leadership among us, between elders and pastors. And I, I have never personally wanted to be the pastor of McLean Bible Church because I don't think that's healthy for our church family, and I don't think it's healthy for me. Not that you want to go back and listen to the very first sermon I preached as pastor, a pastor here, but I tried to make this really clear that it's not healthy for any church to revolve around one pastor or personality for a variety of reasons, starting with the fact that, well, if a pastor leaves, or worse, if that pastor has a disqualifying moral failure, it is devastating for a church that is dependent on that one person. Amen. And even if a pastor is healthy and stays healthy for many years, that pastor will have gifts and abilities and perspectives that need to be complemented by pastors with other gifts and abilities and perspectives. No one person or pastor has it all. And for the same reasons, a church revolving around one pastor is not healthy for that pastor. Because that pastor will be expected to have all the gifts and abilities that no one person has, which means a lot of undue pressure and unhealthy dependence is put upon that one person. It's no wonder so many pastors different sized churches and particularly large churches like ours leave or experience moral failure or burnout when they've been set up in many senses to fail. So all of this is one of the reasons why in our latest revision to our church's constitution, we intentionally did not include one senior pastor role. Instead, we spelled out roles and responsibilities for multiple elders and pastors working together in our church. So the way it's set up, we have a board of elders. It's affirmed by members of the church that oversees the direction and doctrine of the church. The majority of that board is not on staff. So this is not their vocation. That's actually by design. And then we have location pastors as well as associate and other pastors at each of our locations. And some of those pastors are on staff, others are not. And then we identified what we envisioned would be a team of people in between those. Not one person, but multiple lead pastors who bridge the gap, so to speak, between our elders who oversee the entire church and our pastors at individual locations. And we called these lead pastors. These are pastors who serve as elders and on staff, and their job is to serve alongside other elders in overseeing the whole church. And we now say in our constitution that if anyone's going to be in this lead pastor role, they need to be affirmed by the members of the church for that role. And up until now, I've been the only person affirmed by the church in this way. A few years ago, I actually asked Mike and Wade Burnett to serve in a similar role in our church. And the plan was for them to be affirmed by the church. But then COVID hit and the world turned upside down. And we have waited to solidify all of this first in our church's constitution and now in practice, starting with Mike. So many of you know Mike. He served for 16 years in our church family on staff. His wife, Ashley, for 18 years. They weren't even married when they came here. A lot of life has happened 
for them since they came. And over all these years, they have both shown a deep love for and commitment to this church. And they have served in whatever capacity has been asked of them. They've shown a deep passion for reaching this city with the gospel. Mike grew up as a pastor's kid in D.C. He's from this city. He loves this city. And most of all, Mike and Ashley have both shown deep devotion to Jesus that our elders and I have had the privilege of observing up close and personal, which is why our elders are unanimous in wholeheartedly recommending Mike to you as another lead pastor. Which leads to a question. So if Mike's going to be a lead pastor and you're going to be a lead pastor, David, well, how does that work? Doesn't one guy have to be in charge? But again, that's kind of the point. There is no one guy in charge of McLean Bible Church. Actually, that's right. There is one guy. His name is Jesus. You beat me to it. I love it. And I don't say, and we... I know our brother's not saying that, and I don't say that's tritely. Like, he is Lord over this church. And we are all under his authority, and we are so glad to be under his authority. And he calls pastors and elders to have and share the serious responsibility of pointing all of us to him. At the same time, I get the question. So, yes, on any team, there's a point person. I can think about our elder board. So, they're the uh, primary authority in our church under Jesus There's a chairman of our elders, and he's no more an elder than the others, but he does carry a unique weight of responsibility for leading the elders. So who's going to be the point person among our lead pastors, which would include Mike and me at this point? And as Mike and the elders and I have talked about and prayed through this, it has been a no-brainer to us. So remember what I mentioned about different pastors having different gifts and abilities and perspectives? Well, we look at Mike And we believe God has uniquely called and gifted him to shepherd the church to reach current and coming generations in our increasingly secular city with the gospel. And when we look at me, and yes, this is totally weird to say about myself, but I'm just going to own it for now. We believe that God, by his grace, has called and gifted me with a particular burden to mobilize the church for the spread of the gospel to unreached people in the world. In ways that, quite frankly, quite frankly, I want, and if I'm going to be faithful to God's call in my life, need to spend more time doing in my role as a lead pastor. So we've said, we believe it's very clear that God is leading both Mike and me to pastor together in our church. And we believe that as we serve as lead pastors, God is leading Mike to be like the chairman among the two of us and any other lead pastors in the future. Which means he's not any more and I'm not any less a lead pastor, but he's going to assume various responsibilities I've had. And I'm still going to be a lead pastor and elder in our church, sharing the preaching responsibilities, caring for, shepherding our church family, while I devote more time to mobilizing our church to reach 3.2 billion people who have never heard it. So all that to say, put Sunday night, September 24th, on your calendar. So that night, we'll have a church family meeting online. And then between that night and the following Wednesday, September 27th, if you're a member of the church, you'll have an email in your inbox in which you'll have the opportunity to join with our elders in voting to affirm Mike Kelsey as a lead pastor in our church. Next week, 
I've asked Mike to share with all of us a glimpse into what's on his heart as he potentially steps into this role. Be here next Sunday and then be a part of that meeting and just look for any updates along the way. Last thing I'll say about this for now and to summarize why I'm so excited about this is because this step represents one of our elders called a spirit-led crescendo in our church family, in Mike's life, and in my life. So there's been so much in our church that has been building toward this over years as we have worked to cultivate a biblical plurality of leadership as we work to reach our city with the gospel. And I look at Mike's life, and I see the Lord has been preparing him for this for years. I would argue since he was born. Actually, based on what we're going to look at in the Word, from way before he was born. So he can share more about that. And then as I look at my life, is yes, I do have a deep burden to help mobilize our church and the broader church to get the gospel to unreached people in the world. But I also have a deep love for this church. Like this church is my family. It's family to my family. I love preaching God's word in this church. I love serving and shepherding and praying with and caring for the brothers and sisters in this church family. So even as I work to get the gospel to people who've never heard it, I have a personal conviction about pastoring in a church. And I'm so grateful that God has allowed me to do that in this church. So this spirit-led crescendo in our church, Mike, and in my own life is why I'm really looking forward to this step. So, all right, that's the church update. Now the personal update, talking about this church's family. Many of you may have heard or seen on social media, media, and I've had the opportunity to share more here with folks at Tyson's, but... Just in case you don't know any of this background, about three and a half years ago, Heather and I got a call. Well, we were three days away from going to pick up our son, JD, in an international adoption. And we got a call in January 2020 that due to a strange virus that was spreading, our trip would be postponed for a couple of weeks. Those weeks turned into months and eventually to years until we got a call just over a month ago telling us that the time had come and we could travel to pick up our son. So we went. And even that part of, us, of the story is a miracle. There are so many things that had to come together to get visas. God provided in ways that can only be explained by his hand. And we were overseas for about two and a half weeks. And now we are back. And I'm happy to share with you that Jeremiah Daniel Platt, J.D., is now home in our family. He's, he's sitting over here, and he's got about three weeks of English under his belt, so I'm not sure he understands all that's going on, but we've tried to prepare him because uh, I want to show you a couple pictures of him. So here is JD. And we are 99.9% sure that says welcome home in Mandarin, but if any Mandarin speakers... No, differently, please communicate that before I use this picture anymore. Uh, so there's, there's J.D. coming home. Here's J.D. with mom, I think. We've got a picture of J.D. with his mom, with his dad. And with one of his five other siblings. 
who is nonstop in hugging, kissing, and sometimes annoying JD. <laughs> Those pictures, like even right now, they feel so surreal to me. Like I feel like I'm going to wake up and be like, Heather, I had this dream. I was like sharing with the church, and they were clapping, and then, and then I like pinched myself, and it hurts so good. And I realize, like it's, it's happening. I just, I want to thank you. So many of you have prayed with us so much over the last three and a half years for our son. And so many of you, bless you, so many of you have encouraged us along the way over those three and a half years. Like we really do feel like we've walked through this three and a half years with family. And it means more than you know, which is why I wanted to take some time today to encourage you as my family from God's word and from the overflow of these three and a half years of waiting. Because I know waiting is not just a reality for us and my family. Like, it's a reality for all of us. In different ways, different times. I have a feeling most of us, when we think about waiting, could identify something we're waiting for right now. Maybe small, maybe big. Some things that are really hard or really heavy. I should mention there are still families in our church who are waiting to get this call for their child. But even beyond adoption, waiting is a reality in this world. And if, if this was just about me and my family, I could share with you right now some other things in our lives where we find ourselves waiting in some hard and heavy ways. But the point is, it's not just about me. We are all familiar with waiting. And the struggles of faith that we experience in the waiting. As we wonder, why is this happening? When will this end? How will this be resolved? And maybe most important, God, where are you in all this? And what are you doing And why won't you bring this waiting to an end? And to be vulnerable with you, there have been some low times in the last three and a half years when my faith has waned and struggled. Been really weak. I've explained it this way. There's a kind of childlike faith that trusts what his father is doing even when he doesn't understand. And then there's a kind of childish lack of faith that doubts what his father is doing when a child presumes he knows better than his dad what is best in certain circumstances. And too often over the last three and a half years, my faith has looked more childish than childlike. And these last few weeks have brought me to repentance for a childish lack of faith and really foolishness. So I want to take a few moments today to encourage you with what I've learned through God's word over the last three and a half years and the highs and lows of waiting. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn over one book to the right. You'll come to Romans chapter 8, verse 18. And if you're taking notes, I want to share with you briefly five reminders that our souls need in seasons of waiting. 
And I say briefly because any of these reminders could easily be a standalone sermon. And I mentioned this will be a bit unique because all five of these reminders don't even come straight from this passage in Romans 8, though they're summarized here and they definitely come straight from God's word in different places that I've seen and studied over the last three and a half years. So I would recommend one particular book that's been a constant companion to me over the last three and a half years by Andrew Murray. The title is Waiting on God. It's not a book that's intended to be read just in one sitting. Instead, it's just a book, pretty small, with pretty small chapters, but he walks through different instances of waiting in the Bible. And a chapter that'd be two or three pages long, he just reflects on what the Bible teaches about waiting there. And in the process, you start to realize this is, this is actually common to what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's what I want to show you in Romans 8 today. So we're going to read Romans 8, 18 through 30. And I want you to look. There are three times when this passage specifically mentions waiting. So maybe circle it in your Bible or just make a note. This is the Word of God, Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Isn't this interesting? That the Bible links waiting with adoption. As followers of Jesus, the Bible says we are waiting for our adoption as children of God, which then does make the entire Christian life a life of waiting. And you might think, but aren't we already adopted by God? And the answer biblically is yes, all who've repented and believed in Jesus as Lord are children, are sons and daughters of God. But we are waiting to be fully united with our Father in heaven and our family there. This is kind of like the situation my family has been walking through the last three and a half years. The match had been made. The relationship was real. JD was our son. But we weren't together yet. And now we're together. His adoption is complete. 
And this is what we're waiting for as followers of Jesus. We have a real relationship with God as our Father, but we're waiting to be with Him, which means we're longing and groaning and hoping, to use language from Romans 8, for the day when our adoption is complete and we're home. So how do we not lose heart in the waiting? How do you hold fast to faith when the waiting goes on and on and on? And here are five reminders I want to encourage you with today that God has reminded me of over the last three years and specifically the last few weeks. So number one, in waiting, remember that God is sovereign over everyone and everything. Remember that God is sovereign. That word means he has all authority over everyone and everything. In other words, he is in control, which means things are never out of control, even hard things. Did you notice Romans chapter 8, verse 20, that the creation, the whole creation was subjected to futility. That's passive voice, was subjected, which begs the question, well, who subjected the creation to futility? And we might think, Satan, the devil? Well, no, look at the rest of verse 20. Because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Satan does not subject anything in hope that there's going to be glory for the children of God. This whole picture points us to God as sovereign over all creation. And then the rest of this passage makes that clear and personal to us. When you get to verse 28, as we read how God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you know what the Greek word for all things means there? It means all things. <laughs> Everything, without exception, which means even the hard things, even the worst things, God will work together for good. How is that possible? Because God is sovereign over all things. And God has a purpose in all things, which is so important. How God is working all things together to conform us in his image and ultimately to bring us to glory. This is so important because when we walk through seasons of waiting, the picture we see is not always the bigger picture. We, we sang a song here at Tyson's this morning, Never Lost, about how God has never lost a battle and he never will. And I remember one day, a few years ago, singing that song as I was driving in the car. I, would, I was actually shouting it. I was alone in the car. I was just going for it. As there were some things happening that we thought maybe we were going to get to go to get JD. And then it didn't happen. And I remember looking back at that moment many times over the next few years thinking, did you lose God? And the problem was, I was only seeing part of the picture. 
when God sees it all. And sometimes God gives us a glimpse of the bigger picture. Let me show you a picture from when we were overseas these last few weeks. It's not that great a scene. We're just walking down a hotel hallway. But I snapped a quick picture because I was so struck by this scene. When you look at the left side of this picture, you see our daughter, Mara, who came home from China 12 years ago after God had used long years of waiting for children to open our hearts to adoption. She's holding the hand of a little girl named Mercy, who without going into the whole story, would not even be in our family if the adoption of JD had not been postponed. And Mercy is holding the hand of her new older brother. This is a story that only the sovereign God can write. And I'm not saying every story in this world ends this way or that way or with a tidy bow on it. I'm not even saying this bow is that tidy. But I am saying what the Bible is saying. God is sovereign over everyone and everything, which means you can always trust he is working all things together for his purpose. And his purpose is your good. Not even just your good. His purpose is ultimately your glory with him. In other words, it's true. And in the end, it will be clear. And we will sing and we will shout, God does not lose. In the end, all who trust in God will experience his victory. Which actually leads to the second reminder. I really need to pick up the pace here. So remember, don't... Forget, never forget in the waiting that God is sovereign over everyone and everything. Number two, remember that God loves you more than you know or can fathom. He is your father who has adopted you. Do you see that word predestined in Romans 8, 29 and 30? There's a lot we could talk about there. Ephesians chapter 1, the language there is God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us to adoption as his children. So just let this soak in. Amidst your waiting, amidst the weakness you feel, amidst the challenges you face, and especially on the days and the moments when it all seems, feels dark, you're tempted to lose heart, to lack faith, to give up because the longing or the hurt or the pain or the sorrow is so heavy. Remember in those moments that before the sun was even formed, before mountains were put on the land and oceans poured forth between them, before a star was ever even set in the sky, God Almighty on high set his sights on your soul. He loves you and has loved you since before the foundation of the world. He loves you more than you know. He decided to adopt you before a star was in the sky. I was reading Psalm 56, verse 8 and 9 a couple weeks ago from this low point in David's life when he writes, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. Do you see this? When you, when you can't sleep at night, he sees you. When the tears are flowing, he holds them. 
He loves you so much. And oh, no, remember this. God is for you. In the waiting, don't doubt the weight of God's love for you. And not just you. Reminder number three. Remember that God loves others more than you do. So I have needed this reminder when I've prayed daily for my son and wondered, God, why is the door not opening us for us to go to him? And I have needed to remember that God loves JD more than I do. And God has over and over again reminded me who he is. Psalm 68, verse 5, father of the fatherless and protector of widows. That's who God is in his holy habitation. And this is an important reminder overall, isn't it? Because oftentimes our waiting does involve others' lives. We're waiting with others. We're waiting for others, on behalf of others. We're longing for the good of others. And we can start to question not just God's love for us, but God's love for them. And it's good to remember that God loves others more than you do. That God is love. It's his very nature. He defines love. And remembering that leads to the fourth, and I would say most important reminder. Remember in your waiting, that God is the goal. That God is the goal. I've needed to be reminded over and over again over the last three and a half years that adoption is not the goal. Because if Heather and I thought if only we could bring J.D. home, then we would be happy, or then everything would be all right, then we would be missing the point. Because as long as the goal is a change in our circumstances, then we are making an idol out of our circumstances and looking to this or that to fulfill us when only God can ultimately fulfill us. Amen. The goal is not adopting. The goal is not having a child. The goal is not getting married. The goal is not this disease or that sickness ending. The goal is not this or that situation being resolved. The goal is God. And this is so important. It's critical. It's why Romans 8 talks about waiting for the day when our adoption is complete and we are what? We are with God. He's the goal. It's why heaven is described in Revelation 21 as the place where we will be with him and he will be with us. He's the goal. And just think about how the rest of the Bible talks about waiting. Summarized here in Psalm 27, verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And earlier in the same chapter, remember Psalm 27, verse 4, that leads up to this? One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Do you see that? One thing to see the Lord. In waiting, we need to remember that the one thing we need 
And as a result, the one thing we need to want above all, above adoption, above reconciliation, above healing, above an end to the hurt or pain or sorrow or struggle, whatever it is, above all, we need and want God. So here's some practical encouragement in times of waiting that flow from this reminder. So if God is the goal, then let waiting lead you to deeper intimacy with God. Listen to Psalm 62. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. Why for him alone? Because from him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Oh, see this. When God is the goal, when God is your rock, then you will not, you cannot be shaken. When circumstances changing the goal, you will be shaken. When God is the goal, you will not be shaken. So let waiting lead you to deeper intimacy with God. Let waiting lead you to deeper greater dependence on God. And we feel weakness in our waiting, right? We want to change things, but we can't. We feel our limits. We are weak. And what does Romans 8, 26 say? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. And listen to Isaiah 40, one of my favorite passages over the last few years. Have you not known have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who what? Wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What language? Do you see this? The key to going from weariness to soaring like an eagle is to wait for the Lord. And I remember meditating on this passage at one point over recent years and doing a deep dive into that word wait in Isaiah 40 verse 31. And one resource I came across said this word wait can be translated, I'm just going to write it out, can be translated to rest trustfully. And I have held on to that phrase. Let waiting lead you to rest. You can't control, you can't make this or that happen. Rest trustfully in God. And in the process, find strength in your weariness. Waiting leads us to greater dependence on God. A couple of other practical encouragements, if God is the goal, then let waiting lead you to grow in holiness before God. There are so many temptations to sin in waiting to think, act, speak from a place that's not from faith in the process of waiting. So listen to Psalm 37, verse 7. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. 
Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. What a good word. Guard yourself in waiting against fret. It says it twice. Against worry in the waiting. And refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. It only tends to evil. Be on guard against sin in the waiting. The adversary would love to use your time in waiting to pull you away from God. Let waiting lead you to grow in holiness before God. And in the process, so one more word of encouragement. With God as your goal, let waiting lead you to give more glory to God. This is Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Wait on the Lord and you will never be put to shame. You will never regret waiting on the Lord. All these things, remember, God is the goal. Which leads to the last reminder then. Remember that the God who is the goal, he is at work. And Romans 8, 18 through 30 is filled with awesome ways that God is working in our waiting. By his spirit, he's helping us. He's interceding for us when we don't know what we ought to pray for. And what we've talked about, he's working all things together for our good. In other words, God is not waiting. God is working. So I want to encourage you. As you wait then, since, since God is at work, as you wait... Never stop praying with faith. Because there's a major temptation in the waiting to stop praying or to lack faith in your praying. Like, what does it matter? I've prayed for three years. What what difference is it going to make to pray today? Those thoughts start to come in your mind. But God is at work. He's not sitting idly by. He's working. So... As you wait, never stop praying with faith. Luke 18, verse 1 has been one of the verses I've come back to again and again. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Don't lose heart. That's a good word. Keep praying, Jesus says, and don't lose heart. Why? Because God is working. And if God is working, then you and I can and must pray with faith. One, follow this, in who God is. The whole parable in Luke 18 that comes after that is about the character of God. I have found in waiting that we are tempted to lack faith in specific things in God. I think we're tempted to lack faith in his power. Like, God, aren't you powerful enough to change this? We can lack faith in his love. My God, if you... Love me, love this person. Why is this continuing? We can question his wisdom. God, I, I see what's happening. I do not see the wisdom in this. And it is good to pray with faith. So just picture every single day for the last three and a half years, God, please, every morning of my time with him, please open the door for us to go to him. Please, please, please. And the best moments in my faith have been 
when in the next breath I've said, God, I trust you're able to do that today. And I trust that you love him and you love us and you love all kinds of people you're working in their lives in the middle of this. And I trust your wisdom. I trust you're writing a story that I can't see. So I'm gonna ask for these things with faith in who you are. The low moments have been when when I was praying for this and that follow-up prayer was not there. Don't stop praying with faith in who God is. Don't stop praying with faith to the all-powerful, all-loving, all-wise, sovereign God overall who is working with faith in who he is, with faith in what God can do. So don't doubt for a second what God can do. You are praying to the God of the impossible. So don't lose heart. Don't stop praying with faith in who God is and what God can do and ultimately in what God will do. Which is where this whole passage in Romans 8, 28-30 ends. And for all who trust in God, for all who love God, who, are, who rest trustfully in Him, waiting on Him, He will bring you to glory with Him. Amen. And specifically for those who trust in Jesus, which actually leads into the verses that follow in Romans 8. Before I go there, I do want to ask every person within the sound of my voice, have you put your trust in Jesus in such a way that you are a part of the family of God? Yes. So here's the big picture, like bigger than any of the stories I've told here. The big picture is that we live in a world of waiting because we live in a world of sin and corruption and sorrow and sadness that flows from that. Just like Romans 8 talks about in creation, where so many things are not as they should be, and where suffering and hurt and pain and unfulfilled longings are a reality for all of us. All of this is ultimately because in this world and in each of our hearts, we've all turned aside from God and his ways to ourselves and our own ways. As a result of our sin, we're separated from God. And if we die in this state of sin, we will actually spend eternity in suffering, separated from God. But the good news of the Bible and the greatest news in all the world is that God loves us and has not left us alone in this state. That God has come to us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus has done what none of us could do. He has lived a life of no sin. And then, though, even though he had no sin to pay a price for, he came and chose to die on a cross to pay the price for our sin. And then, three days later, he rose from the grave. He has conquered sin, suffering, and death itself. So that anyone, anywhere, no matter who you are or what you've done, if you will put your trust in Jesus, God will forgive you of all your sin and reconcile you, restore you to relationship with him, adopt you into his family to be with him forever and ever and ever. If you have never put your trust in Jesus as the Savior, the Lord of your life, I invite, I urge, implore you to do that today. Hear God saying to your heart right now, he loves you more than you know, more than you can fathom. Will you receive his love for you? And when you do, and for all who have, for all who are in the family, through Jesus, 
I encourage you today. I just look out across this room. I think about so many others in other locations, walking through so many things. Now, some that have been walking through this for a long time, hear God saying to you today that he is at work in the waiting, and this waiting will not be the end of your story. No matter what this world throws at you, you just keep going in Romans 8, verse 31, where the Bible says, God's saying directly to you today, if he is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns Christ Jesus, who died? More than that, was raised to life and is right now at the right hand of God interceding for you. Who shall separate you from the love of Jesus? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For we are convinced neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are in the family of God, adopted as his child. And one day, you're going to be with him. One day, we're going to be with him. And he's going to wipe every tear from the waiting, from our eyes. So, will you bow your heads with me? All across this room and other locations, there's online. Just bow your heads, just focus. You before God. Do you know him as your father? Because you've placed your faith in Jesus. If the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, I invite you right now just to say, God, I have sinned against you. I believe today, I believe that Jesus died on a cross for my sin. He rose from the grave so that I could be saved from my sin and brought into your family. So today, I put all my trust in you. I rest trustfully in you. I trust you with my life. I trust you with my eternity. And by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus, all who trust in him are saved from their sin and brought to know him as Father. Oh God, for those who are coming to know you as Father now and for all who know you as Father. We, we pray in this world of waiting for the help you promised to give us in Romans 8 from your Spirit. God, I just pray for every single person who's in a particular season of waiting right now. God, that they would hear these words from Romans 8 coming directly to their hearts right now. We pray that you would help us all not to lose heart, not to lose faith, but to trust that you are writing a story that only you can write. And in the end, it will be for our good and our glory with you. 
Oh, God, hasten the day when we will see your face and you will wipe every tear from our eyes and help us, we pray, to trust restfully, rest trustfully in you from this day until that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.